Welcome back to Let's Rethink This. I'm your host, Abby Berger, and today we're talking to Sayer Johnson from Metro Trans Umbrella Group, or MTUG. Sayer started MTUG in 2015 with the help of Alex Johnmeyer, Eli Chi, Jordan Rigorex, and Ray Larson, after noting the need for a, a larger trans presence was necessary in St. Louis. With the intention of bringing together the transgender community in the St. Louis metro area, the organization now serves all individuals that fall under the quote-unquote umbrella term of trans, which includes, but is not limited to, transsexual, genderqueer, androgynous, agender, intersex, drag, and questioning. And it helps to mend the resource gap provide support and the resources to trans folks in St. Louis. So I want to pause here and say that I know not everybody listening may feel comfortable using or even understanding some of those terms that I just threw out. So before you run away, we will get into more of the details around the terms in the conversation. Whether this topic is completely new to you or you are part of the trans community, this conversation will have a little bit for everyone. We are also going to link some really important resources in the show notes if there's something that strikes you and you want to learn more. So without further ado, let's welcome Sayer. Hi, Sayer. Hi, thanks for having me. Sarah, it's so great to have you here. I've been looking forward to having you on the show since I started thinking about creating the podcast. Um, And I'd love to just start with you sharing your story from maybe your early childhood and where you grew up and how you got involved with the trans community and what you're up to now. Sure. The the abridged version um, is I was born uh, in Galveston, Texas. My birth story is I came out of my mother's womb in a plume of cigarette smoke. The doctor had just had a cigarette. The nurse and my mother all had a cigarette right before I was born. I was born in 1972, if that makes a difference. And I came out of my mother and I was declared a little girl and the world of my family rejoiced. And I uh, lived my life many years walking in a woman's skin. I was definitely identified as a tomboy as a young person and as a butch person as an adult. And then eventually when I was 36 years old, I met my first transgender man and soon thereafter uh, uh, medically transitioned. I um, went to 11 different schools before I finally dropped out of high school in 1988 because I had been tracked and bullied relentlessly as a queer person. And also we moved all over the the United States geographically. So I never really had a good solid crew. I ended up in St. Louis in 1987 uh, with my family of origin. Um, I came out as a lesbian in 1987 to my mother. And I, I, and she's like, uh, I don't know what, oh my gosh, you're going to die of AIDS. I mean, this is all she knew about being queer or being gay or lesbian in the 80s. And she quickly readjusted her sales as a good Southern mama does. And she said, well, honey, you need to meet your people. And so she took me to my first gay pride in St. Louis. I was 16 years old. And 
she's like, I'll come back in a couple of hours, go meet your people. And so I got out of the car at Forest Park Pride in 1987. And uh, there were a lot of old lesbians there. And so I at least knew I could be an old lesbian. Um, <laughs> fast forward many years of living out and proud in lesbian community. I was able to, I, I partnered early on with a woman who I was partnered with for about 25 years. Um, we had two biological children together. I eventually adopted a third child through foster care. And around the time I was 36 years old, I met my first transgender man. And I knew that that's what I needed to do. Um, that Butch was not truly my gender identity. It was male or masculine. And so I come out to my mother like I do. And I'm like, mom, I'm transgender. And she's like, well, I don't know what to tell you. You're going to have to find your own people. And so soon after coming out, um, you know, this was like 13 years ago. There were just not very many resources for transgender people. And I was a parent and I wanted my children to have support. You know, you, when we had a, when we, this is a simplified thing, but when we, when we wanted to have a guinea pig, I went to the library and I'm like looking for books about guinea pigs so that we could talk about guinea pigs and how you take care of guinea pigs. I come out as a transgender person and there was nothing. There were no support groups. There was very little visibility on TV. There was no positive visibility for us. Negative. We were villains and, and um, murderers, right? Um, and so about two years into transition, I, create, I, I co-created a, a group called The Locker Room, which was for trans men. And then from The Locker Room came the Metro Trans Umbrella Group. Because as my mother said, you got, you got to meet your people. You got to be with your people. Uh, to survive. And I believe that that's what MTUG has done. It's created a beacon for other transgender and trans expansive people to find their people. So that's the long, long end is that I was a human who did not have my people until I was an adult. And now I cherish my people like my chosen family. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. I, I think that that story is I'm glad you put the context around it, like kind of when this was happening what year, um, because it, it, it does look so different now in 2021 than it did at that time. And so we're going to go through kind of a little bit of detail around the history, um, a little bit further in the episode, but for anybody who is new, I'm assuming that not everyone listening knows what some of these terms mean. So first, can we just kind of lay the groundwork and will you explain very simply, what does transgender mean? Sure. The simplest way I can explain it is when I was born, I knew there to be two choices on the planet. And so I'm going to use, uh, if you could visualize a ruler, number one, you could be a boy. Number 12, you could be a girl. That's it. You came out of your womb, out of your mother's womb. The doctor looked at your genitals in between your legs and declared you a boy or a girl, a one or a 12. That's what I knew to be true until I knew that that was not true because what really exists in this planet is a beautiful spectrum because there's two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, and 11 of ways to be in gender in our bodies and in the world. And so transgender, trans expansive, the people that MTUG serves are not ones and not twelves. We are all the people that encompass two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and eleven. All the different ways that you can be transgender. That doesn't necessarily mean, in my case, I'm a binary transgender person, which means I 
went from feminine to masculine. So I'm a binary transgender person. I walk in the world as a male. Everybody looks at me. They're like, that's a guy. I'm a, I have male privilege. I have, I have white privilege. I encompass privilege in my transgender identity. Then, but the, so that's a binary trans existence. And then there's non-binary trans existence, which means folks who do not necessarily adhere to society's standards or to their own standards of what masculine or feminine is. Perhaps they're a combination of both. Maybe they're neither. Maybe one day they're more masculine. One day they're more feminine. Maybe they're somewhere right in the middle. Those are non-binary transgender people. So if you're looking at that ruler again, number one being you're born and identified a girl. Number 12 being you're born and identified a male. So maybe a non-binary person might wake up and be a three kind of feminine. But then by dinner time, they're more of an eight or a nine, right? So I'm trying to explain it in that sort of like, Gender is not a binary. It is a beautiful rainbow of ways to be. And I think that a lot of people can relate to like, some days I want to put my ponytail up in a ball cap. And some days I want to wear a fancy dress, right? And so for transgender people, it's not a fanciful notion. It's an identity. It's the way that we are in the world. So trans expansive, trans inclusive is sort of an umbrella term for anybody who does not identify all the time with the sex that they were identified by at birth. Yes. Thank you so much for explaining that. I think that's a really great analogy. It's easy to understand. Um, You know, it's a good visualization for anybody listening on, on what that means. And so you're using the term non-binary and I know people also use the term androgynous, gender queer. Are those kind of um, something you can use in place of non-binary, would you say? Yes, absolutely. The main thing about it, it's an identity, not a identity, right? So if somebody is telling you my identity is non-binary or my identity is gender fluid or gender queer or androgynous is a little bit of an outdated term, but still people identify as that. Um, then yes, I mean, you can claim your gender, your identity, however you want. I know a human who refers to their gender as a phoenix. Their gender is phoenix. They don't use he, him, his. They don't use they, them. They use phoenix as their pronoun and phoenix as their gender identity because every day they're reborn into something else. So, you know, I think that we can get really creative with the way that we label ourselves. And it's also important to hold space that in the trans umbrella, there are definitely binary transgender people. I'm sure that many of us have seen them or heard about them, but the vast majority of humans that make up our trans umbrella are non-binary folks. They're the biggest growing population under the umbrella. And so making space and creating space and welcoming our non-binary siblings is vital to the transgender uh, movement. Absolutely. And one thing that you just said was people's pronouns. And I know this is something I've learned over probably the last, I don't know, maybe like five to 10 years about understanding and respecting people's pronouns. Um, Why, I guess maybe put some context around this for us on why that's so important. I know for me, it, it seems pretty easy to understand now that I do understand. Uh, I would not like if someone used he, him, because I use she, her. So I think innately, I understand that, but how would you explain it to someone who really struggles with the 
with the pronouns, especially when it comes to using they, them, because I know that is newer. It's a little bit more confusing. What would you, how would you describe that? What would you say to somebody first learning about pronouns? Yeah. I mean, you know, the basic thing is it's a matter of being respectful and loving towards people. And when somebody is telling you who they are, I believe them, right? And so I'm going to hold space and be gentle with people who are like, I'm looking at you and I want to say he, him, and you're telling me it's she, her, and I'm confused. And I'm going to say, that's okay. You know, it's human nature. We have been taught one way. We're going to relearn these things. And so what I would encourage people that are struggling with it is to not use pronouns or not use gendered language. You can absolutely have a conversation with somebody and not use he or she or they. You can say their name repeatedly, which is so loving and sweet. Um, But the main thing is, is that, you know, we all want to be respected. We all want to have our basic uh, space that we take up respected. And I just encourage people to really push themselves a little bit to try to validate and value people's identities Um, or don't use gendered language at all because it's harmful. It hurts your feelings. And I'll just say too, we mess up. It happens. People call me my old name every once in a while. Most people don't know it anymore because I'm old, but people will say she on occasion, which is strange to me, but I, you know, but it's best just to apologize quickly and move on. Don't make it a, something that if you hurt somebody's feelings, it you shouldn't make them make you feel better. You just need to apologize for your behavior and do better and move on. So, uh, so I'd say, you know, somebody says she, and oh, I'm sorry, I meant he, quickly move on. So, but yeah, I, I understand the struggle. One of the ways that uh, we tell people to practice using they, them in particular as a pronoun, because some folks aren't quite used to it, is refer to your pets as gender neutral uh, pronouns, say they or them. And honestly, we already use they, them all the time. Like, let's say um, somebody sideswipes my car. And it's just one little old human driving the car. I'd be like, oh, they just sideswiped me. That's a singular person referring to them as a they because it's an appropriate use in the English language. So I would challenge that notion of they, them's not appropriate. It is. We use it all the time. Shakespeare used it. Beyonce uses it. We use it. I don't know if you told me this in the past or if someone else did, but they use the example of someone leaving their jacket at a restaurant and you wouldn't say, you would say, oh, they left their jacket because you don't know whose jacket it is. You don't know who it belongs to. It's just somebody's jacket. So Uh um, using that really gender neutral term of they left their jacket or someone left their jacket or that guest, you know, whatever, um, it makes it a little bit easier, I think. And, and that really clicked for me. And I hope, you know, if somebody is listening and is struggling with how to use that, that maybe one of these examples clicks with you. And, and that is a good suggestion about your pet. So I want to also touch on something that you talked about a little bit in your story with, identifying as a lesbian earlier in your life and now well I'm not sure I don't think you touched on that but I 
idea or I guess this concept of gender identity and sexual identity being mm-hmm. two separate things. So can you walk us through this? I know you used a really great example um, in the past in one of your trainings. So I don't, I don't know if you want to use that or something else, but walk us through how and why those are different. Sure. You know, it's interesting because back, back in the day, I'd be like, you know, I'm Sarah, I'm trans. And somebody would be like, oh my God, I know this gay guy in Chicago. His name's Bob. Do you know him? First of all, all gay and lesbian and transgender people, we don't know each other. We don't all know each other. We know a lot of each other, but we don't know everybody. And the, the, and so people were confused. And so I, my sexual orientation, which is who I love, who I am romantically attracted to, who I go to bed with, my heart. That is my sexual orientation. I'm queer. I was a lesbian and I don't feel like it's appropriate for men to use the term lesbian, but I do not feel like a straight man. So I use the term queer because that aligns directly with my sexual orientation, which is who I go to bed with. My gender identity, which is in between my ears, which is my brain, which is the way that I think, is who I go to bed as. So my gender identity is masculine or male, and my sexual orientation is queer or queer. (laughs) Um, So it's in between your ears is your gender identity and your heart is your sexual orientation. It's two separate parts of who we are. Uh, Sometimes they can be blended, certainly, but in my case, I am a transgender man who happens to be queer. That's kind of separated out who you are in the world and who you are romantically attracted to in the world. Right. I think that's such a good way to explain it. Um, I know I've had so many conversations with people that say, oh, trans people are all gay or, you know, and, and it's really blending these two things, but they're very separate. And I think distinguishing between the two is important and makes us understand people a little bit better. So I think it's, it's just something good that I wanted to cover and and make sure that we talk about, because I think it gets, it gets muddied in the media a lot, I think, and it's not very clear. So it's good to have these conversations. And now I kind of want to move into something that's very important. And it's about how transgenderness and mental health interact and intersect. So some people say being transgender is a mental illness. And I, I want to say very, very clearly to our listeners, being transgender is not a mental illness. So just to repeat that being transgender is not a mental illness. And I want to share a little bit of history about this from the American Psychiatric Association. And, um, and Sarah, if you want to jump in on this, feel free. But Magnus Hirschfeld is credited as among the first physicians to distinguish between same-sex attra- attraction and transsexualism. So that was the term that was used, transsexualism. This was followed in 1949 by David Caldwell, who proposed one of the earliest diagnostic conceptualizations related to gender identity with the term psychopathia transsexual 
alias, I think is how you pronounce it. So in, in 1966, Harry Benjamin, who's a doctor, published his foundational text, The Transsexual Phenomenon, and is credited with popularizing the term transsexual as it is used today, educating med medical professionals about transgender people and pioneering hormonal treatments to facilitate gender transition. So again, that was in 1966, not, not that long ago. Um, so despite increased attention to transgender people, the first two editions of the DSM, which stands for the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, it's kind of like this big book that um, people use to determine what mental health issues someone is having. So it, the first two editions of the DSM contain no mention of gender identity. It was not until 1980 with the publication of the DSM-3 that the diagnosis transsexualism first appeared. In 1990, the World Health Organization followed suit and included this diagnosis in the ICD-10, which stands for the International Classifications of Diseases. So with the release of the DSM-4 in 1994, transsexualism was replaced with gender identity disorders in adults and adolescents in an effort to reduce the stigma. However, controversy continued with advocates and some psychiatrists pointed to the ways in which this diagnostic category pathologized identity rather than a true disorder. So with the publication of the DSM-5, which is the most current edition in 2013, gender identity disorder was eliminated and replaced with the term gender dysphoria. So this change further focused the diagnosis on the gender identity-related distress that some transgender people experience and for which they may seek psychiatric, medical, and surgical treatments rather than on transgender individuals or identities themselves. So the presence of gender variance is not the pathology, but dysphoria is from the distress caused by the body and mind not aligning or the societal marginalization of gender variant people. So the DSM articulates explicitly that gender nonconformity is not in itself a mental disorder. So with that, <laughs> that's a lot of history. That's just a lot of explanation. Um, let's talk a little bit about gender dysphoria. So we just heard, you know, that for some transgender people, the difference between the gender they are thought to be at birth and the gender they know themselves to be can lead to serious emotional distress that affects their health and everyday lives if not addressed. So gender dysphoria is the medical diagnosis for someone who experiences this distress. Again, not every transgender person may feel this distress, so it's not a blanket diagnosis for a transgender person. So Sarah, can you share some of the ways that gender dysphoria presents and some of the ways to address it? Sure, I mean, it, it, it presents in a, a large variety of ways. It presents in um, things like as simple as 
clothing not feeling aligned with somebody's identity to as complicated as hating your own body, right? And so, and needing to manipulate your body into a way that it feels better to be in your body. Um, and so, I, you know, it's a double-edged sword to have that sort of gender dysphoria still as our diagnosis. But it, 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 what it gives me at this point, and maybe in 10 years, I will be differently evolved. But at this point, it gives us a point of reference to get medical intervention because a lot of us who choose medical intervention need medical support with that. It's expensive to do. And if it's traceable and trackable in an insurance sort of way, it makes it more obtainable for us to get these services done. So some folks who have gender dysphoria choose to change the hormonal makeup of their bodies. For myself, I was estrogen powered for many, many years. Once I realized that I could start taking testosterone, I did. And for me and my own mental health journey prior to testosterone, I had seasonal affective. Dis I was sad in the winter, very sad, had a hard time functioning. I was an incredibly anxious and depressive person. And once I started taking testosterone, it, it was, it, it's kindred to humans in my life who find the perfect antidepressant. For me, that's what HRT did. It lined me up. It removed a lot of my outward symptoms of my own dysphoria, which presented with anxiety and depression. It changed the fat of my body to go from a very feminine looking fat body with hips and a, and a backside and, all, and a, a smaller belly to having no hips, no backside and a large male presenting belly in the front of my body. And so that too helped my gender dysphoria. Um, and then I also had to uh, surgically alter my body because my dysphoria was bad enough that I was really struggling with clothing that would fit over my breasts. And I did not want to have breasts and they just, they, they made me feel really inadequate as a person. And so I was able to save money and, and pay for that surgery because generally speaking, those sort of surgical alterations are not uh, payable by insurance unless you have really good insurance. Um, so I think at this time in our movement, it's necessary to get some of the services that we need. Um, but I'm hopeful that we live in a gender-free society at some point where individuals can just make those decisions without jumping through hoops. I can tell you that in St. Louis, up until our partnership with Planned Parenthood, which only happened very recently, um, in order to get HRT, which is hormones replacement therapy or surgery, you had to have letters from psychiatrists and psychologists stating that you indeed did have gender identity disorder and that you were eligible to take these medications. Now, uh, with our partnership with Planned Parenthood, all you have to do is walk into Planned Parenthood and as long as your blood tests come back okay, that you're safe to take the hormones, they believe you and they trust you and you get to start your medication regimen. Yeah. I, I, thank you for sharing that. And I think it's good to put um, some perspective on it just from someone with a lived experience as a trans person. Um, I think it makes it a little bit easier to understand. So obviously not everyone shares the same level of dysphoria, maybe they don't even have dysphoria. So can you tell us just a little bit about that? Like, what is your experience meeting trans folks um, who don't necessarily share that same feeling? Sure. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, I know a lot of trans folks who don't experience gender dysphoria. What they experience is gender euphoria when they are in a position or a place where they are feeling aligned with their own body. And that can come from changing your clothes to fit your body, using adaptive equipment like binders or underwear that like tuck things away. Um, It can also come from hormone replacement therapy. You know, some folks uh, just simply don't experience those sorts of debilitating aspects of sometimes our identities and instead are just frustrated with the way that society sort of does us, you know? And so there we are creating our own systems of ex- of exhibiting our own gender in ways that feel good, and just sort of like bucking the traditional sem- the traditional uh, systems in place. So I think um, you know I think I don't know I think it's an interesting way to be, and I think we're evolving as a community, and I I'm, I'm interested to see where things are going to go in the future. I agree. I think. Uh... I, I've seen at least a lot of people that are gender nonconforming. And I've seen so many more men that I know wearing nail polish or, you know, doing things that were traditionally historically very feminine. And now it's kind of being embraced by a larger community, which I think is is ultimately great because we should be all able to express ourselves however we feel best, right? Yeah. Like if I want to wear a nail polish or if I don't, if I want to wear a ball cap or if I want to wear a dress, like we should all be able to do that. Um, so I know this is a full long episode for our listeners. So I wanted to ask you, would you be willing to do kind of a part two to this episode and talk more about what MTUG is doing in the community? Sure. That sounds great. Okay, great. We will be back next week with, um, another episode with Sayer.